it's not at all like a reasonable or practical decision, but. Kind of been dreaming about getting the car that I had. When I was in high school and it was the 70s, early 70s, Chevrolet Impala two-door coupe. Uh, it was a 1992 Chevrolet S10 pickup. 39 Chevy. 1964 Plymouth Valiant. A Plymouth Valiant. Navy blue. Black. Bright yellow. Canary yellow, brown trim and seats. 1976 Saab. My parents' 1970 Cutlass Supreme, bright red with a black rag top, and I thought it was the coolest car ever. This is Rebecca Smith. You're listening to Quoted, the question of the day podcast. It's an audio montage of on-the-spot answers to one good question. In this episode, we ask... Make, model, year. 1930 Model A Ford. And I still have it. And I had to work 70 hours to buy it from the farmer that owned that car. I remember buying it for $35. <laughs> I go back to Iowa every about every year and I try to get it ready to drive in a parade. Gives me great thrills to drive in the parade. Minnesota Street Ride Association, back to the 50s show at the Minnesota State Fair. It's a lot of fun cars. We got out here of any era from early 1900s to 1950s and 60s. My first car, 1957 Chevrolet. Paid cash for it, $1,500. The second one I bought, in worse condition than the first one, I paid 15000 for it. And plus I restored it into a resto mod, which no end of the money on that. My first car was a 1965 Plymouth Fury with a 318 and a three on the tree a shift. And I got it for $75 from my dad's neighbor. He said, just get it out of here. And so I had that car for like three years until I blew up the engine. It's like anything, people like to hunt and fish. I like the car scene. I like to do things with cars. I like to look at them, fast cars. I bought a, or I had a 1972 Nomad station wagon and my dad gave it to me. So, and it was really cool. And then my first car I bought was a 1987 Chevy Monte Carlo SS and I still have it. I've had it for 30 years. I will never get rid of it. I'll have it probably till I'm gone. (laughs) It just brings me back, I guess, to when I was a kid. And it's like when you get back in time when you get behind the wheels because it looks the same and it's just childhood I guess makes you keeps makes you feel young I guess right dad (laughs) makes you feel young (laughs) my dad taught me to drive when I was probably about seven or eight years old I sat on his lap I was always really interested in cars and I was kind of a little not nice I used to sneak him out when I was about 14 years old and take his cars and drive up and down Central Avenue and drag race with all the big boys 
my dad's cars were really fast and I would beat them all and I was 14 I didn't even have a driver's license so my dad had a nice Camaro and I would sneak it out of the garage and race older boys I knew that something was going on but I couldn't you know I started marking the tires and stuff <laughs> I'm dressed in normal 1950s attire, so I have the um, cat eye sunglasses, red dress, um, white polka dots, got the shoes on with the bobby socks and everything too. Some people that we met from our car club came to our wedding. I mean, you know, it becomes family. I mean, it, it's just a blast, you know, and if somebody, say my car's not running right, you know, five guys will come over and jump under the hood, you know, and you don't get that anywhere else, really. I mean, you don't get that really in life. I think, I think a lot of the people here, something caught their eye or it's something they had in their childhood, their dad had one or something, grandpa had one. That's, that's why they have them. My favorite would be a 59 Impala. I just like the wings of the back end, the cat eye taillights. It was fun and we can fit about 14 people in that car. Because we, we, we would get our, all our friends and we'd go down to the ballpark and go play ball. Yeah, that was fun. It was a big, big tank of a car. You look at a certain kind of car and say, oh, I remember all those memories of driving around in the back seat, hanging out. And I was just listening to a friend telling me a bunch of stories of him being five years old, driving around in the back of a car. I come from a big family. And there were a couple times we took vacations out west to the Rockies. We took trips out west. And it. we had this big GMC van. Did all kinds of And all traveling. of us I would made a little, pack uh, into it like sardines. We would have boards over the tops put, uh, of the bench seats. And, things on there and so people the laying on there. those to sleep as we drove all night. And some of us laying on the seats. And then some of us laying on the floor <laughs> underneath the seats. Kind of scary when you think back. That was back before you had to have seat belts and all of that stuff. It was wonderful. We took our trip out west. We did all of that in that car. What's my deal with an old beat-up taxi cab? Well, in short, for as far back as I can remember, this car has been a long time coming since I happen to be a pseudo-authority on cars that are one jump start away from the junkyard. I just happen to like cars, like people collect buttons, guns, or Beatles memorabilia. However, let me explain that my affection toward the automobile is a bit different from others. You see, I don't like nice cars. I like cars that no one else wants. My whole life I've always been the woody wagon driver, the beat-up police car owner, and yes, even an old cab owner. I have no desire to own a new BMW, but if I had to have one, I think I'd prefer one that has been totaled. Even when I was a kid, I would just take a hammer to my matchbox cars or paint the wheels black. It's just part of who I am. But what I have always really wanted was a New York City taxi. Hitchhiking. Uh, 1972, my then girlfriend, now wife, and I hitchhiked out uh, west. So we were staying with some friends from our church who had moved out to Missoula, and then we hitchhiked uh, down to Salt Lake City. Well... It took us uh, a couple of really slow rides, that is to say, long waits to get down through the Bitterroot Mountains. But then um, we got a ride with a couple of students from Missoula who were headed down to Salt Lake City, and um, they had uh, a joint that they I know, uh, passed back to us, and we got a couple of 
you know, puffs on the joint. And so we were all having fun watching the mountains go by. And um, there was a sports car that had skis on the, on the top, comes zooming around us. And then they slow down and uh, like slow down to 40 miles an hour. And well, the guy who was driving is, um, you know, he's getting a little perturbed because why did these guys pass us up just to slow down? So then he floors it and passes them up again. And, and so then they uh, follow us for a while and then they pass us up and then they slow down. And the, the third time that they're gonna pass us up, he rolls down the window to yell at them and they roll down their window first and say, your gas tank is leaking. So we um, pulled over, saw that um, there's gas that kind of pull us pouring out of the gas tank. The wheels are turning, and we're trying to think, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to uh, plug the hole? Uh, an Idaho potato farmer, tall, skinny dude in a bright yellow pickup truck comes um, pulling up behind us, and he looks over the situation. We figured, oh, it's a farmer. We're, we're saved. And he says, well, I don't know if this will help, but here... And he hands the driver of our car a potato. And boy, we spent about 20 minutes trying to figure out how to get pieces of that potato into the tank. <laughs> it didn't work. Cynthia happened to be chewing on some gum and it seemed to like slow it down. And so then we look on the map and see that the next city is Atomic City, Idaho. Atomic City is a gas station and pull into the gas station and buy a pack of gum and everybody chewed their stick of gum and we put them all together and plugged the hole in the tank and it got us all the way down to Pocatello. Marche and Gigi who I uh, picked up hitchhiking in Mexico. Truly the most flexible people that I've ever met. We traveled for four days together and we went on an expedition to find flamingo feathers in the salt marshes right off the Caribbean at a place in the middle of nowhere called El Cuyo. I could have traveled with them for the rest of my life. A lot of people who travel are not relaxed and they're worried about uh, uh, what's going to happen or what's going to be at the place they're going to or whether they can do what they think they have to do and uh, None of those things were a question with these uh, two women. And then we, we uh, parted company, and I probably will never see them again, but uh, uh, they were the ultimate in travel partners. There are men of three generations that are my best traveling partners. And um, the first one is my father, who just died in, in August, and he and I were traveling buddies. We, he had a um, 1924 Model T Ford that he bought in 1968 and it was the fourth Model T he owned and he and I traveled all over the country in that car. And I became um, an addict of um, events and I loved history, I learned history. the seat of that car and it had a smell and a sound and the sound the sound was like and it was 
and in a really fine internal combustion motor, you have to listen to it. You have to listen to it. It's not just, not just how, you know, it's how it sounds. You can, if it was in a really slow speed, dra- driving through a campground, it could sound like a Singer sewing machine. And we always went on the old roads. So I got really good at finding like where the old routes were. I just learned because you can, you can like, you know, I was the navigator and it, usually it's a, along a river. Yeah. So it gives me this thing that I'm so, I feel, when I think of my privilege, it's the privilege of being in that America, in an old car with your dad where everybody just loves you, you know? And that's kind of how I thought it was for everyone. And I still get to escape into it because now in another old Ford, Alan and I, <laughs> We have a 66 Ford truck, our car, Elmer, Elmer Ford, and we also go driving around. And, and so I find myself like sitting and crying in this hotel lobby. can't get any more cars that no one wants than a New York City taxi. I love the energy of a New York City taxi. They're just different. Why are they different? Because they simply do not exist for very long when they're done being a taxi. I mean, really, who wants a car that thousands of people have burped, vomited, farted, and who knows what else inside of? I guess I just feel sorry for them. I would challenge anyone to find a New York City taxi that is still around from the 70s, 80s, or even the 90s. They are few and far between. A few, and I mean a very few, New York City checkers still exist, but, well, not very many. While I am not so insane to believe an inanimate object is alive, I do feel that certain items in life that are not made of flesh can be a buzz with energy. If people can justify and validate the idea of feng shui, I can imagine my car, too, has its own variables of vibe. Taxis are an embodiment of New York life. They are absolutely relied upon when not being cursed at by various city dwellers and for silly, clueless hillbillies and tourists, they are printed on shirts, coffee mugs, Starbucks cards, plates, silverwares, and even shoes. Naturally, I have a pair. So since they are obviously revered the world over, why would I buy a toothbrush painted yellow with checkers on it when I can have the real deal? Anyhow, New York City taxis, unlike other cities, are made for New York. They are put into service brand new and can only remain on the streets for three years if fleet-owned and five years if an owner-operator. They are inspected every three months, and there is a list of rules and regulations involved in the industry that only a unique and gifted prodigy could know to the letter. Not only that, to actually earn a hack license is not quite as easy as you think. There's quite a bit to it. I happen to have a New York City hack license, and I'm rather proud of it. Okay, the first car I drove, the one I, quote, learned on was um, an early 60s Volkswagen Carmagia that belonged to some guy that my mother was dating. 
She wouldn't let me drive her car, but she was fine with driving his. Most of what I remember about it was um, the experience of learning to drive. But the first car that I owned was an early 60s Volkswagen Transporter. The Transporter is a bus with no windows in the back. So it was like a Volkswagen panel van. And what I remember about it was uh, being on the way to Florida State. And this thing used so much oil that pretty much every time you filled up, you had to check the oil and usually add oil. We were driving up at night uh, to be there in the morning. And uh, the trunk, or the engine compartment, because it really didn't have a trunk, the engine compartment opened with a key, a special, not like a key to a door, but a special handle that fit into a hole. And uh, I remember checking the oil, and I had the bad habit of leaving the key sitting beside the engine, inside the engine compartment. And I did that one time on the way up, and I closed the door and realized I couldn't open it again. And I was sure that we would not make it based on the idea that the engine would burn up for lack of oil. We went through two gas stops, and on the third gas stop, for some unknown reason, the uh, engine compartment door had popped open on its own. So we were able to make it to Florida State um, because we could add oil again. I drove a 1990 Geo Prism stick shift car, and I remember I was so excited because I my father had bought it for me out of college, and but I didn't know how to drive stick shift. So there was this huge excitement and big incentive to learn. You might want to call your parents to make sure it's okay that she's driving the car. No, it's okay. I told my mom before. She was, it doesn't matter. Are you sure? Dad, make sure you have your hand on the Where's emergency brake. Hey. Okay. God, these flies are driving me nuts. Where's reverse? Reverse? Oh, you push down for reverse aim? All the way to the right and down. There. You look behind you. Is your brake off? Mom, yes, it is. <laughs> oh my God. Boy, this is pretty creaky. <laughs> I... You got to back up some. There you go. Good. More. More? You're going to hit that car. Yeah, I know. Go ahead, you know. No, I'm not living in reverse. There you are. Well, I'm not going anywhere. Got the clutch out. You can't go up a hill. Ah. <laughs> okay, okay. Top, you, you just have to learn the clutch and the accelerator kind of go opposite each other. And sometimes, depending, you know, if you're on a hill, you got to give it more gas. But what you don't want to do is run around, drive around with your foot on that clutch with the clutch half in you burn the clutch out. The clutch has got to go in or out. And in our family, we keep our cars like pets until they can't be driven anymore. And I remember when I finally, it was all rusted out and I had to buy a new car and all my coworkers applauded because I guess my car was stuck out a little bit from everybody else's. <laughs> so anyway. January 24th at 7.26 p.m. Hi, Aunt Becky. It's Kathleen. And guess what? I got my license. I got my license. Okay, well, just give Mommy a call when you get this, and uh, I got my license. Love you. Bye.
Now, for the past few years, I had been perusing Craigslist looking for Ford Crown Victorias in the New York City area. Fleet garages don't sell their cars the traditional way. They just get sold wholesale to other cab companies and other places if they're not cut up for parts. But owner-operators do on occasion sell them outright in the hope an idiot like me out there wants to buy it. So I would always put a price range of $200 to $1,500 just to see what was out there, knowing full well the only thing that would pop up in that price range would be a beat-up cab. Every now and then one or two would pop up, but, well, I just never bid on any of them. Then, one day, the universe aligned itself with me, and here came this ad for a 2006 Crown Victoria. And what my fiancé would likely state as being an embarrassing flop of fate, the ad just reached out to me and tapped me on the shoulder as if to wink and say, Oh, well, hello there, Mike. I don't know how to explain this, but whenever I look at a car and get this feeling I'm going to get it, it always happens, and I had the feeling. The ad had four pictures of the car attached, and it just looked grand. I liked that it still had its decals on it, and its medallion number, 8D69. New York cabs are identified by their unique medallion number, which now cost a million dollars and as of 2011 have a higher return than gold. It had no plates on it, and I could see a few crinkles and scrapes as I would expect. It looked absolutely sad and pathetic wedged in front of some other car like a puzzle piece on some street in Queens in front of a garage packed with decrepit-looking Lincoln Town cars used as black cabs. They looked like they were just shipped here from Beirut. Quite literally, it was kicked to the curb. It was speaking to me, saying, Mike, Mike, save me and take me on a family vacation. Nice-looking car, but I bought it off of a used car lot and I will tell you, the used car salesman who sold that thing, he saw me coming. Here was the kid eager with his 800 bucks, and he got all 800 of it. And um, it looked nice, but the engine was just about shot. I bought a car in 2003, Acura uh, sports car, $3,000 from the lot, uh, used car lot. It was 20 years old car when I bought and you know I loved driving this car it was so fast moonroof and I got six tickets from that car (laughs) (laughs) and I met my then boyfriend husband and he said why are you getting so many tickets and he drove one day that car he said Oh, boy, it's really good, this car driving fast. <laughs> this is right before my senior year of high school. And we moved to Minnesota, and... I basically just bugged I told my parents, my parents a lot. Well, when I, I was coming up to the now? time when I could get my license, I really wanted a so they, truck. I said, okay, go ahead. So I'd saved up my money from various jobs. And I went to the used car lot nearby with 650 bucks, <laughs> And I found a navy blue 1976 Saab. Um, and that thing was beautiful, and I drove it like crazy for about six months before the thing broke down, and I, it never moved again. Mini Motors, M-I-N-I as in skirt. And it's that name because it's so small. 48 years with me running it. It was a car lot prior to that. It was called King Motors. There are seven cars on the lot now. In the old days, you could have up to 12 because the cars were a little smaller. I loved old cars and pursued it as a living rather than a hobby. 
That's when the city came in and dug up the boulevard. I think that was probably five, six, seven years ago. And it just basically everything went downhill since then. Every evening I looked up my usual Craigslist search and every day the guy selling 8D69 put up a new ad. For days and days and days it went on like this, with the already reasonable price going lower and lower. It seemed nobody was interested. Surprise, surprise. But people's lack of vision and their fears work to my advantage when it comes to the crappy car biz. Clearly a higher power was telling me to buy this car. I wanted it bad, real bad. This car was actually perfect for three reasons, other than it simply being a New York taxi. First, in 2006, it would have applied to its skin the old-style decals until the newer ones most people are familiar with became regulation. Second, it could very well have been a participant in the Garden of Transit program in 2007, where New York City taxis had those not-sure-how-I-feel-about-this flower garden paintings applied to the hoods, roofs, and trunks. Thirdly, and most importantly, I like knowing that when I go to New York, which is often, and sip a coffee on the pedestrian plaza in Times Square, that I could know my car thundered right through there if only for a year or two. Light metallic blue, four-door, automatic, six-cylinder. Coincidentally, it had been my dad's first brand-new car that he'd purchased, and I got it for my high school graduation present. For Christmas one year... I got this little like this little light bar that you that had a microphone on it and you just would could stick it anywhere in the vehicle and then when the music was playing it would flash in response to the music uh, and I was so excited about it that right after we opened Christmas presents I went out in the cold and was like in my mittens and jacket uh, putting this thing in my truck I remember putting in the eight-track stereo underneath the dashboard and the shag carpeting and things like that from the early 70s. I had to replace the sound system in it. It had, a, had an eight-track player in it. Yes, it had an actual eight-track player that had that slot that looked like it fit Atari games. So the El Camino was not a cool car when you go to high school in the mid to late 90s. It was silver and blue. Uh, a lot of the, the rivets off the side where you, you had the, the tarp that would cover up the back, they had popped off. Yeah, 1981 El Camino, Super Sport with a 229 V6 engine. It was a total piece. Rear-wheel drive, threshold brakes. This is this is like two tons of steel. Like it was the safest thing you could do in an era before airbags. This thing was safe because it was a tank. It was a freaking tank. It was awesome. It was my mom's first car that she ever bought and paid for with her own money. One of these blue-collar upbringing type of people, and we still have it. It is still sitting in my mother's garage in Pocosin, Virginia, with the salt water that uh, flooded it 14 years ago. It was destroyed, basically, by Hurricane Isabel in 2003. I think it might be a total loss, but... The fact is, people always ask me, whoa, you want to sell it? Well, I don't know. Even though it's 20 years coming up on my high school graduation, people will remember the car I drove my junior year in high school, the El Camino. Jason Bryan from Mad Talk Online, and that 
was my first car and why? My first car was a 1968 red Plymouth Charger with a fastback. The leather bucket seats, and in the back, the seats could go down, and it went back into a fastback that could lift it up, and it was sort of like a weird station wagon with a fastback. I love this car. It was my father's car, but he had a stroke when I was in high school, so he gave me the car um, when I was able to drive. Now, I, it had a V8 engine, and my father should not have given me a car <laughs> that had a V8 engine, now known more as a muscle car. And all the guys in high school were drooling over, not me, but my car, uh, and gave me all sorts of hints and were willing to you know, keep souping it up for me. My only problem is that when it rained, the carburetor had this weird thing where I had to bring my hair dryer out and blow dry it. You know, you're nodding. Yes. <laughs> I did my, a, a boyfriend told me, I didn't know, I was late for school, didn't know what to do, told me to get my hair dryer out. So I had this long extension to you know, undo the carburetor cap, blow dry it so that I could drive it. I absolutely adored it. But my mom, um, after I don't know how many uh, speeding tickets, decided that I should not have that car anymore. And so it was an owner-operator car, meaning it had regular drivers, a very good thing, and was on the road for five years, not just three, which basically means it is one trip away from having the word deceased stamped on its title. Five years of shagging fares in New York City is a lot of stop and go with various nefarious people slamming what would be my car doors. Now, does this make a lick of sense at all to anyone why these strikes against it made me love it all the more? Probably not. Anyhow, I thought to myself, life is short, and soon enough the Crown Victoria will be going the way of the dodo bird and checker cab, and I ended up calling the number listed on the ad. I spoke to a guy who I couldn't understand at all. He was Pakistani and quite friendly, but for a guy who was advertising the car sale every day, he seemed a bit disconnected and aloof when it came right down to it, as if discussing the car was an inconvenience. I asked him if it ran good. He told me it did, but that the transmission was 70% stating it slipped when you went over 65. He told me the car had 310,000 miles on it. Perfect is the only thing I could think. What was my wife's first car? 1976 Valiant, Plymouth Valiant, dark pine green. She actually bought it herself. I bought it in 1985 with my tax return, and I was so excited to have a car. She was teaching... Um strings down in Beloit. She was going around and giving lessons and getting getting a uh, junior high string program going. And she walked between seven schools doing that. She finally broke down and bought a car. When I first got it, I drove it over to a friend's house and all I could talk about was the awesome stereo in it. And she says, but does it run? Yeah, my wife worked uh, at a uh, A&W one summer when she was in college. That was the car she used then, and that became our family car. I don't have a first car because I'm a kid, but my mom, when I was born, my mom had a Toyota, and that's what we rode in. The first car I owned, I owned with my older sister Pam. It was a 1967 Mustang V6 engine. Awesome. 1980 Datsun B210. A 1976 Ford Pinto. It was white. Light blue. Red. 
A weird green. 1987 Pontiac Sunbird. It had been my mother's car. My dad kind of gave it to us. And I think it started out as technically my mother's car. I got from my dad when I was 15. Joan. And I named her Bessie. Francis was an old VW bug. Harold Stassen. That's what we called the car. Francis didn't last too long. It cost about $400 to get it running. And it had kind of tinted windows, which are probably illegal now. Rear wheel drive. Because it just kept running. It would get stuck. It went fast and I had front wheel drive and I could drive out of any snowbank effortlessly. It just had no traction at all. If you went over the railroad tracks, then the radio would stop. For the last couple of years of it, the, the latch on the glove compartment had broken. If it was rear-ended, it would explode. Then the heat would go out. Being very scared, driving it up north in the winter without a heater that worked, really. And we had like a lot of wool blankets. And everything was steamed up, and I had to go right behind big semis to be able to see the road. And I didn't know until I drove it to Morris, Minnesota in a snowstorm that there was no bottom to the car. There was just wood, like plywood with carpet over it. Driving down Lake Street. I'm driving west on Lake Street over by what's now the YWCA. Back then there was there was a restaurant in the corner called the Mad Mad Mexican. I found out that it had a problem with the way it was rusting because it was a unibody construction, which meant that it didn't have any like structural elements. The outside of the car was what held it together, something like that. All of a sudden, this boom! And, you know, thank God I had my seatbelt on because otherwise I probably would hit the windshield. And so it does this and the car is running, it's purring like a baby. So I start to move it and I hear this awful noise. I get out of the car and I look and the trunk was sitting on the tires. I talked a mechanic into illegally welding it together over the wheel wells. So that, you know, I, I can't remember what the problem was, but it kept on going. I had it for about three years until it broke in half. <laughs> so I took the money I got for it and went out and bought some dinner. And, um, and it was in that car that I got the nickname Crash. The Crash came on my side. I don't know how fast he was going. I think it was actually someone that went through a red light. It happened so quickly. My first car was a 1946 Hudson, green one. After the war, it was very hard to get a car. My father managed to get one, although it came with no back seat. That had to come later. But he gave it to me, and um, I was driving down with uh, my friend Donald. He was driving, and uh, from my home in uh, up north in Eveleth, <laughs> We we got down around Rock Creek, and there was um, a car stopped. You know, take a left-hand turn. And uh, Donald was coming so fast that he had to go around it. And, of course, he didn't make it. I just remember getting there. My sister had fallen. I ended up with five fractures in the pelvis, a fractured spine and a broken rib. I was worried that she was in the hospital or something. And I spent seven and eight weeks uh, flat on my back 
in a hospital trying to recover him. My first gut reaction after that happened was to apologize to the driver. And I remember feeling so racked with guilt about that. Um, it ended up she crashed it, but she was okay. My doctor said, you are not going to limp. On a subconscious level, I, I knew that she was okay. You are going to wait until this is healed. <laughs> God bless him. And uh, so I did. She was not injured, just like the headlight broke. It was winter, and I had broken up with my boyfriend of two and a half years. And we'd been living together for two years, and I had just moved him out to L.A., and he was severely depressed. And he left me with the apartment to clean. And so I was cleaning it, and it was my last load of stuff that I was bringing to my parents' house which is where I was going to stay for the next couple months until I went and did my residency off in Connecticut. And um, it was I was riding around the bend, and I was going to pull into my parents' house. It was a giant circle. And I um, a really good song came on the radio, and I was like, I'm going to keep going. And so I went not even a block away from my parents' house, and this car came whizzing around the corner, and they skidded on the ice, and they hit me, and they kind of sandwiched me up against a light pole. And the kid stumbled out of the car and a plume of uh, marijuana smoke came out of it. And he was walking all janky. The police came and da-da-da-da-da. My car was ruined. He ended up going into rehab. He didn't have insurance. He never paid us back for it. Um, My car was totaled. And I was so depressed when my car broke down, I just left my life in there. My favorite salmon cargo pants. I had a whole collection of CDs and DVDs and notes from my undergrad studies in theater and my drama history book that I miss desperately and clothes and um, I think like toiletries and like cleaning supplies because I think that was some of the last stuff I got from there and a vacuum and a bunch of pictures and a bunch of production photos that I'll never get back. Uh, A couple years later in the summer, I always worked in North Dakota Governor's School, this summer theater program. And uh, I was walking to the dorms, and um, there was this CD on the ground. And I was like, whoa. I was like, that's my CD? I haven't seen that in forever. It was like this, like, hot tomato, hot mix thing. And I grabbed it. And a couple days later, there was, like, like a picture of me and my friend like laying out in the dorms and I was like this is crazy I haven't seen this in forever I did not bring this here um, and then later I was in the lunchroom uh, monitoring the students and uh, an old checkbook of mine was laying on a table and um, I started panicking and talking to the other people working there and um, Finally, these two guys came up to me laughing, and they said that um, one of them had their car towed, and when they went to the impound, they saw this car full of junk, and they went in, and they grabbed bags full of stuff, and they were going to torment me um, for weeks with them until I basically broke down, and I was way too panicked for them to continue their plan. Clearly, if I didn't buy this car, it would most certainly be hacked up for parts and the rest discarded or used as a gypsy cab or see short-term service in New Jersey before heading to that Times Square in the sky. Fast forward to my decision to get it. I told the guy on a Friday I would buy the car, but I would not be able to get there until Tuesday. He told me he would hold the car, but uh, I wasn't so sure if he would or not. Truth be told, the guy was irritating me. Here he had the one guy on earth who wanted the stupid car more than anyone else, and he was like, whatever. 
All weekend, I was a little nerved up the car would suddenly sell because the fool kept advertising it every day, despite saying he would hold the car. On Monday, I called to remind him I would be driving from Vermont, and I would meet with him at his house on Maple Street in Hempstead to get the car. He seemed to have forgotten about me, but then said he would meet me at 2 o'clock and sort of pretended like he remembered me the whole time. My father drove down with me. Upon arrival, of course, the seller wasn't there. I called him and he said he'd be right over in 20 minutes. About a half an hour later, I looked in my side view mirror and roaring up the street was my lovely 8D69. I snapped a photo as quick as I could. 39 Chevy. 1939 Chevy. Black. When I was in high school, you had to have great big hubcaps, like, like Cadillac hubcaps. And you usually didn't buy them. You went and purchased them in St. Louis off somebody else's car. And you go to the Western Auto Store and you get some white wall paint. And you paint these big, wide white walls on your tires. So I had a 39 Chevy with big white walls on it and big hubcaps. My friend, Glenn Calvin, Glenn actually become a doctor. and He died couple of years. I can't believe he's a doctor and died of prostate cancer. But he had a 39 Chevy just like me. And my friend Larry Snarr, he had a black 39 Chevy. So all three of them were black. All three of them had big white white walls on it and big hubcaps. Had fender skirts on them in the back. The sheriff would pull up. I had reports about this black 39 Chevy racing to the other part of town. I said, he never could figure out which car it was because they didn't get a license number. Every now and then, we'd hang out at the taxi cab stand. And uh, that's where everybody would park their car in this little shack where about 10 people could hang out in there. And we hang out outside there. This is where everyone hung out and talked. Uh, even the sheriff, he would hang out there at the taxi stand. Everyone was just hang around there and talk. And then a guy, Charlie Sanker, was a, a taxi guy. Charlie Sanker, he was a, he was adopted. It was a big deal back in those days. Charlie would come out for a, a poor folks' home or an orphanage someplace. His people adopted him. Charlie Sanker, he was a guy that was in the Navy. He got out of the Navy back in the 40s, whenever. He must have been in the 50s. I was in high school, and he just built this little building downtown off the sidewalk, and he had an old 49 Plymouth, and he had an old Pontiac, no radios in them, and if you wanted a taxi, you'd call a taxi number and uh, take the call, and he'd come to your house, pick you up for 25 cents or whatever it was, and take you where you wanted to go. And we answered the phone. He liked it when the guys hung around because... There was no one there to answer the phone when he was on a, uh, a thing, so we would actually answer the phone for him and get to the, the people's name and where they wanted to go. Yep, 39 Chevy. The taxi that would take us to church before we owned a car, it was a checker cab. It had like a bench seat in the back, but if you were a kid, it had a little round pull-out seat that pulled out from the back of the front seat. And it was like a little stool that you could sit on. And only the kids got to sit on those stools. And they were not, like, very safe. 
<laughs> and you had something you could grab onto, but the stool didn't. I don't even remember having a back. But all I remember is being very little in the car and having to hang on for my life on this tiny little stool. One of the early cars we had when my parents were just starting out was an old used checker cab with the little jumper seats in the back. And when we would go to church on Sunday morning, the kids, we would fight over who got to sit on those. Our cars are cars are a great part of any family history. He told me he fixed the transmission and stated everything fine, giving me two A-OKs with his hands. He said it just needed fluid added. Later on, I discovered the problem was a simple seal on the drive shaft. I did notice the tires on the car were as bald as Kojak as it sat there idling, begging me to climb aboard, but I didn't really care. I love this thing. I was simply giddy about it. You never notice how yellow a taxi cab is until you are either sitting behind the steering wheel or are about to buy one. If the engine fell out of it at that moment, I would have literally tied a rope to the car and dragged it home. I slipped behind the wheel, and like all New York City cabs, I felt totally wrapped in yellow. It was a strangely intoxicating feeling to know it would be coming home with me. It felt sturdy. I felt sturdy. Despite the euphoria, I noticed immediately that the gas gauge was right on E, which irritated me just a smidgen. The brake light was on, the ABS light was on, and the engine light was on. I also noticed the New York City taxi inspection decal on the windshield was only a few weeks old. So either the inspection station was friends with the owner, or during its decommission process, many a wire was crossed in equipment removal. They were unnecessarily rough. Parts of the dash were damaged when the meter was torn out. In any event, it ran great. I took it down the street for a few turns and came back for fear it would run out of gas. This baby was sold. We lived in Northern California. We lived in a a little town called Danville. And we lived on top of a hill uh, with two horses at a little ranch head. And the horses were mine. And my mother and father said that I had to make sure that I took care of the horses or else we weren't going to keep the horses. And so whenever anything was happening with the horses, I was always very nervous and would run out. I was like eight or nine years old. And it wasn't even morning yet. It was at that twilight hour. I heard the horses making these horrible noises. And they were whinnying, and they, I could hear them running, and I'm panicked because I'm thinking, you know, they, I hope they're okay. So I run out to the, the fence, and I look back, and my one horse is going up. It's rearing. It's stomping. Um, I look at my other horse, and the other horse is just terrified. Its ears are perked, and it won't move. And I couldn't figure out. And then I saw these kittens. And I thought, how strange. There are these two kittens in the middle of my paddock. And I started to, to about to go through the gate when I hear this, and I look over, and it's drought time in, in Northern California. When it's drought, it means the animals come down, and they look for water, they look for food. And it just so happened that it was a mountain lion that was having her kittens in the middle of my paddock. So I was at the gate. There were kittens in front of me. There was a mountain lion to my left, my horse straight back, and my other horse to the right. And my first thought is, oh my goodness, you know, this mountain lion could go after my horse. And then I looked at my horse and I thought about me. Um, I'm a lot smaller. (laughs) And if this mountain lion is going to go after something, it probably is not going to go after the horse. Uh, But my thought was still on 
just trying to think through how can I connect somehow to this mountain lion to let him know that let her know that I love the horses probably as much as she loved those kittens and so instead of just running because I knew that if I ran um, that would bring out some sort of instinct in her I actually looked at her and backed up a step at a time knowing that my dad's charger was 10 paces behind me because it was parked right next to the um, right next to my my paddocks and I kept staring at her and she kept growling and the kittens kept playing and the horses kept whinnying and <laughs> there was all this but there was this incredible connection and scary moment of just can we be at peace and as soon as I got to the car I opened it up crawled in slammed it behind me and then watched her take each of her kittens out of the paddock and back up whatever back up into the foothills and I must have stayed in the car at least two to three hours I watched the sun come up and I wouldn't come out thinking you know it could be right around the corner but then my conundrum was you know who do I tell if I tell my parents they might not want us to have horses so I just told my dad and I said you know this is what happened and he was amazed but he was kind of proud of his he called me lolly his little lolly and he said, we're not going to tell mom because, yes, we would probably have to get rid of the horses. But uh, it was our secret. And that car became sort of the, the symbol of that secret between my dad and me. Linda loved dogs. Dogs loved Linda. My college roommate had a Barracuda. It was the coolest car. In a car having my first White Castle experience. Linda had all these dogs. She collected cans so that she could spade and neuter dogs there's a lost dog, people would go to Linda with the dogs. But I was with my friend Jim, and he was borrowing his father's car, which he called the Brown Bomb. And there was some dorm party that was going on, and somehow I got stuck driving the Barracuda to White Castle to bring back the White Castle for this dorm party. This was the late 70s, so it's probably an early 70s Chevy Impala or something. It's one of those big tuna boats. Linda was so crazy about dogs that on a dog's birthday, she would take a whole pack of dogs, maybe four or five, in her van and drive through a White Castle and order them all hamburgers. And we were out driving around and decided, well, we're looking for something to eat. Anybody that's uh, done White Castle in the college experience, uh, it was often late at night after you'd had a few malted beverages. Well, what about White Castle? We pull in, and I'm quite apprehensive about the whole experience. I ordered two sliders, two burgers. The bread was wet and awful. Maybe I like the wet bread. And the car smelled so bad. And the dogs would be barking, 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 because they could smell the hamburgers half a block away, and they knew what they were getting. I, I have never been able to eat a White Castle. And it's just, and I've despised White Castle ever since. We would go to the White Castle, and we started ordering the left side of the menu. Whatever happened to be on the left side of the menu, we would order all of those. So my family, they can only go to White Castle if I'm not around because of the smell of the White Castle burgers in the Barracuda. We would generally split that. And I'm sure that that was part of why the dogs loved Linda was she was the only human they knew that would take them through the drive-thru at White Castle. 
maybe it's a yin and a yang thing, whereas Brian didn't have a good experience. I had a wonderful experience with White Castle. Um, this was shortly out of college. This is one of my first post-college jobs. I was actually working for AmeriCorps, so I was basically living in poverty. And I was really glad to get a free car. I, I had, a, had had an old pickup truck that was at the end of its life, and one of the, my coworkers there, who was actually an older coworker who was getting paid a real salary, took pity on me and said, I have this old Ford Escort. He gave it to me for free. I thought it was great. I had this little red car now uh, that didn't cost me anything. And I had a new girlfriend, and I was going to meet her mom for the first time. We were going to go out to dinner for the first time. I hadn't met her before, and I was feeling pretty cool because I had this little red car, and I was, I was uh, taking my girlfriend's mom out to dinner with my girlfriend. and We were driving down University Avenue uh, in St. Paul, and uh, I... I noticed the braking was kind of hard. It was kind of hard to stop the car, and the braking was kind of it was jittering when I went to a, I pulled up to a stop, and uh, I pulled up to a stop. And I noticed it looked like it looked like there was smoke coming out of the front. But I wasn't sure. I thought, no, that can't be. It's 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 you know I'm just imagining it. And I pulled up to the next stop stoplight, and there was smoke coming out of the front. And at that point, I was thinking, oh geez, I'm just gonna ignore it. I'm gonna ignore it. It'll be fine. <laughs> I don't want to say anything because my girlfriend's mom is sitting in the seat right next to me. I don't want her to think, though, who's this kid driving my daughter around in this car? Well, the next stoplight, we, I hit the brakes, and it wasn't just smoke. I saw flames coming up from the driver's side wheel well. There's a moment of panic, like internal absolute panic. Pulled over to the side, and I ran out of the car. wasn't sure what to do. I ran into the nearest shop, asked in a, in a panicked voice, do you have a fire extinguisher? The woman behind the counter just pointed at the fire extinguisher. I ran, I grabbed it. First and only time I've used a fire extinguisher, I took the fire extinguisher, pulled the pin, and sprayed the, the wheel well out. So the immediate danger was done, but here we were still stranded a few miles from my apartment on University Avenue, and we thought, well, now what do we do? Well, I knew there was a car shop somewhere near there, so with my girlfriend's mom in the driver's seat, she steered, and my girlfriend and I pushed the car backwards down University Avenue towards the, the car shop. So we had just gotten into the shop, and my girlfriend's father, who I had never met, pulls up in a giant black SUV and steps out. And he's about six foot six. He looks at me like, who the hell is this kid <laughs> who just about killed my wife and my daughter? Well, so we, we didn't really get off on the right foot. Yeah, it was, it was a relationship that didn't last, probably partly for that reason. When I was in my early 20s, I went on a long trip with my current spouse. And um, when we got back from the West Coast, my mother had bought a wig, and my father had bought a TR4. I couldn't believe it. It was, it was so out of character for both of them. My liberal, you know, politically correct parents, so we had this little two-seater sports car convertible. It was a midlife crisis, I'm sure, for my father. Um, and shortly thereafter, um, we found ourselves pregnant, and um, we were at a um, a baby shower for my sister-in-law, and it turned out to be the day I was going to have a baby, a month early, or more than eight months. Anyway, we were at this picnic with my mother and my husband and the TR4. It was getting dark. It was time to go to the hospital. And we were out in one of the suburbs, and my mother could not... Um, figure out how to keep the lights on. And she could not figure out how to get the, cu- the 
cover up on the car, and it was a two-seater, so Ralph was sitting on the bench in the back. <laughs> so we were speeding to the hospital with the lights going on and off and the wind in our hair, and we got there in time. My dad was still sitting in the other car looking like he was pondering what devil spawn of junk cars I came from. My father has learned through the years that when I spiritually will a car to myself, it's going to happen. So he just sits silently and fights the urge to give me his I disapprove look. After I paid the seller, he asked me for a ride back to his shop in Queens, which I obliged after getting some gas. When I got gas, the gas cap was missing, but he went into the station and emerged with a used one that someone must have left at some point. There was no doubt in my mind the original gas cap was back in this guy's shop on the floor somewhere after removing it to siphon the gas out of it while exchanging its good tires with junk ones. Speculation on my part, of course, and while I may be a marginal hillbilly, I didn't just fall off a turnip truck. Clearly, this car was squeezed like the last lemon on earth to drip drop every single penny of value out of it. Kind of pathetic if you really think about it. In any event, I drove the seller to a shop, he gave me directions back to the highway, wished me luck, closed the door, and he never looked back. That would be the last stranger 8D69 would ever transport. A fitting end to a long, hard career in the city of broken dreams. Grab a mechanical-minded boyfriend and have him check the car for you. It was a lemon. Terrible car. Broke down all the time. It was a stick. I loved driving it. Through the, an ad in the paper, my dad helped me. We went around and looked at cars and um, he had no idea what a good car would be and we didn't do any research and he stereotypically kicked the tires and said oh this looks like a good car and later we found out the owner previous owner had rolled back the odometer and it had all sorts of problems. My first car was a 1961 uh, Chevy pickup truck which started out this very faded color of red but ended up about the color of my shirt I actually wore this shirt because of Becky's instructions, and I was thinking about that truck as my favorite thing, so connection there. Uh, and wow, what an experience that was. Uh, had to rebuild the carburetor, uh, change the wheel bearings, uh, replace the radiator, uh, work on the clutch. Um, endless fun. I think my parents knew that, that buying a, a nearly worn out $600 car for me was a way to keep me out of trouble for at least uh, four or five years. The 64 Valiant, uh, the first thing I remember after Dad bought it was we took it to the Target store number one, which was in Roseville, and it had an automotive section at that time, and we took it there to have seat belts put in it. So at that time they didn't come with seat belts, but you could get them at Target. Um, I'm not sure how long <laughs> that lasted. Um, and then the next thing I remember, I was owning the car, and I'd drive along, and it was like it was running out of gas, and it would die, and then the gas would come back. And so my dad was an engineer at 3M, so he rigged up some tubing from the engine compartment and the carburetor into the passenger compartment with a the tubing going through a, a vial. He was going to try and look at the fuel flow to see if he could figure out what was going on with it. Of course, changed the fuel filter and probably did some carburetor work. And Eventually, we found out the fuel line from the gas tank went past the shock absorber, and the shock absorber going up and down over years had worn a hole in, the, in that line, which you couldn't see the hole because it was up against the, 
the uh, shock absorber, but eventually it, it would suck air in there from time to time. But it took us probably a couple months to figure that out. As young adults, we went back to the land and um, lived out in the in a tent in the um, western in the fields of western Wisconsin and the car we had at that point was a 1959 red Ford panel truck. It was 1970, 74. So we had a 1959 red panel truck my brother had bought in um, Kentucky and brought back up to Minnesota and he had, it had a tendency to pop out of third gear so he hung a brick on the um, transmission. <laughs> He called it a third-year stabilizer. It was a great old car. When my dad is working in downtown Tulsa for Amarata Petroleum, he and his friend Nye McClory would spend their lunch hours cruising the car dealers, which were then in downtown Tulsa. They would drive the cars for test driving. They would look at all the new models, and it was a big deal about cars when you were a guy. When he was probably a teenager, 15, 16, his dad, who was a pretty gruff and powerful guy, said to him, Jack, you're 15 years old. You don't even know how to drive a team of horses. And he said, Dad, and he was really proud of this, Dad, when you were my age, you didn't know how to down-clutch a non-synchronized transmission. <laughs> the relationship between my father and his father was probably much more complicated and fraught than I will ever understand. But it had, at its heart, something about machinery and specifically about cars. My dad rebuilt the woodwork and everything in the body, and he worked on it a, probably a whole winter. So the thing has very special uh, sentimental value. I could never sell the car. Drove it through high school. That was my big claim to fame, driving a Model A through high school. Graduation day, I stepped up and bought a 40 Ford with a V8 in it. What a proud day. <laughs> as I thundered onto the highway, I felt like a million bucks. Best car on the road as far as I was concerned. And I couldn't believe I was the owner of a real live New York City taxi cab. Meanwhile, BMWs, Lexuses, Mercedes all passing me by as boring as ever. And they meant nothing to me. As I headed out of the city limits, I could see Manhattan to my left. I know it's nuts. I really do. But I almost felt a little sad for my car. I felt like a street soldier was leaving behind the war and headed to a home in parts unknown, leaving all his little yellow friends to continue on with their daily battles. So many questions played in my head. How many hours and days did this car bake itself underneath that grand skyline? How many times did it hammer through the nuttiness that is Midtown? How many people did vomit, burp, fart, or whatever in this car? Out of the over 13,000 cabs in New York, this one was getting away, and it didn't matter to anyone. Besides being excited, I was naturally a little nervous, too. I mean, I didn't really know this car yet, and well, it did have as many miles as a trip to the moon and halfway back on it. 
but it drove really fine. Its V8 engine throttled and pounded softly like a chef on bread dough. On Interstate 95, I crossed into Connecticut, honked the horn, and said goodbye to New York. We only had one car when I was growing up. But when I turned 16 and got a driver, or when I was 15 and a half and taking driver's training, my folks bought a second car. It was not supposed to be mine, but I'm the only one who drove it. It was used. It was a 1959 Hillman Minx convertible. It had 15-inch tires. It was black. It had a red convertible top and red faux leather seats. It had a four-speed floor shift transmission. The shift lever was maybe a yard long. It had an unsynchronized reverse and first. The first was, first gear was properly called compound, compound low. It would get you up to maybe 10 miles an hour, maybe to the middle of an intersection. You had to shift really fast in the second, or you would, you would roll to a dead stop. And uh, I replaced the, the shift knob in that car with uh, a shift knob. It was a little chrome piston that you screwed on. If I shifted real fast, which I had to do, the piston shift knob would fly off into the back seat. <laughs> But we had a great time with that car. In, in North Dakota, in the middle of nowhere, there's lots of fields. It's like a farming state. It was really windy one day. And we spent uh, like two hours just driving up and down the road and trying to hit the, hit the tumbleweeds as they crossed the road with my truck. Um, and that was super, super fun. <laughs> a lot of my friends lived in a, a developing community. I'd take the hillman out there and we would drive through the undeveloped fields. We called it pioneering. There was tall grass there and we would drive through the grass at night with the lights shining through the grass so you could see it being mowed down. I remember distinctly driving around Highview Estates where we hung out, out on the edge of town, with Molly Flynn sitting up on the on the, with the top down, sitting up on the back of the front seats, driving around Highview Estates. It had four-wheel drive, and I grew up in the country. After it rained, we had uh, minimum maintenance roads in North Dakota in the country where they just weren't maintained at all, so they would get super muddy. And I would just drive up and down those after, the, after a rain uh, for fun. And that was like how I entertained myself <laughs> when I was 16 and had a truck. <laughs> Datsun B210, a bright orange Datsun B210, and it was a shift car, which was my first experience with that. So I had to learn how to use the shift. And um, It had an extended cab, so it had seats in the back that flipped out of the side, if you've ever seen that. So they're not at all comfortable for anyone to sit in, but I thought it was really cool when I got it. And it also had a moonroof which you don't see in pickups very much. <laughs> I was really excited about that. I like the blue lights on the um, display. They were real uh, uh, kind of a turquoise blue lights. It was real pretty in it. The gauges, like the speedometer and stuff, were digital. 
it looked almost like out of a science fiction like 80s movie it was unique it wasn't just the normal dial that rotated up i thought it was pretty pretty hot stuff it was a great little car it got totaled by a bus that didn't see me stopped at a red light and and crashed it but uh i was i really liked that car it was getting really rusty around the wheel wells uh I, I move on to new exciting vehicles quickly, and it was getting rusty, so we just we just sold it. I knew it needed some transmission oil, and I bought the new transmission oil, and I put it in the trunk and somehow ticked it off my mental list that I had done it. But uh, yes, it died on the highway because it didn't have any transmission oil. I sold it to a junker. But here's the weird thing. My next car was just a plain old ordinary car, And it was so weird at first. I couldn't put my finger on it. And then I figured out, oh, people aren't looking at me. I'm an anonymous car. And that was hard to get used to again. As I continued north into Massachusetts, the funniest thing started to happen. People were waving to me. By the time I hit Vermont, A few people honked their horns, gave me a thumbs up, and even cars passing would slow to a pace in order to take a picture. I thought to myself, what the hell is this? This is supposed to be the biggest lump of dung on the road, and people are giving me the thumbs up? Taking pictures? How strange. As I rolled into my little village in Vermont, I pulled into my garage and got out and gazed upon this dream car of mine that nobody wanted. A rare survivor of sorts. I imagined this thing plying Gotham Street, every day and night, surrounded by the insanity that is New York City, with its various hipsters, worldwide tourists, small-town movers and shakers who act apart but stick out like sore thumbs. The Lower East Side what-is-this moments, the 4 a.m. Bleecker Street drunks, the sirens, loud music, and everything else in between. And now, here it was, for the first time in its entire life, in a garage. A real garage, made of wood, and it was quiet, not a noise, just total ear-humming silence. And all was right in our world. You've been listening to Quoted, the Question of the Day podcast. I'm Rebecca Smith. Thanks to everyone who contributed to this episode, including everyone who came out for a Quoted event. We had a lot of fun. If you want to be alerted of such events in the future, subscribe to our newsletter. You can do that at the website, questionpodcast.com. Also, it was a pleasure meeting people at last year's Minnesota Street Rod Association's Back to the 50s event. This year, the event takes place June 22nd through the 24th at the Minnesota State Fairgrounds. Also, a big thanks to Michael Roos for his story about the lovely 8D69. Brian Harmon read the adapted version of the story. You can read the original at travelsinacab.com. That's it for now. Until next time, take care.